Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. We're continuing with the series Diversity in Early Christianity. In the previous episode, we began to delve into the worldview of the Gospel of Philip and the way in which it conceives of salvation. In particular, we've noticed the way it focuses on the idea of the reuniting of the spiritual spark with the spiritual realm and that this could be expressed in terms of the image reuniting with its angelic counterpart. In this episode, we look at more fully the rituals, the practices that we have reflected in the Gospel of Philip. Rarely do we get a glimpse into the actual practices of Christian groups like the ones behind the Nag Hammadi writings. But this is one of those cases. And what's interesting here is we can explore these rituals and the initiation process that is reflected in the Gospel of Philip. This initiation process involved a variety of rituals that culminated in what this author calls the bridal chamber. So it's particularly interesting how this author uses sexual imagery as an analogy for explaining the reenactment of salvation among the Christians who belong to this group. So here we see the connection between sex and salvation, but it's sex as a metaphor, as we'll soon see. If you'd like to read further on the Gospel of Philip, Paul Foster has a very brief article that's quite good in the Expository Times that you can look at. Also take a look at Fanas's dissertation that I mentioned in the previous episode. I hope you enjoy this episode. This seems to be the central focus of the Gospel of Philip in a way is this actual process of initiation that is also the process of salvation. And I've already mentioned to you the Gospel of Philip as a whole may have been a guidebook to instruct initiates. And so that they had particular rituals, ritualistic ways of performing the fact that the initiates gained salvation through gaining the knowledge that they needed regarding the nature of humanity and the nature of the universe and all that. Uh, so let's take a look at how this is expressed, what the ritual involves as best we can. Once again, things are scattered. As with everything else in the Gospel of Philip, the references to different aspects of the ritual are all over the place. Never does the author systematically discuss what it all means. However, we can piece together some things from what is referred to. First of all, it's worth mentioning, as Foster does in his article, that the Holy of Holies and the temple analogy is very important for how this initiation ritual is expressed. In the case of the Jerusalem temple, the Holy of Holies is the most sacred place, and it's only once a year where the high priest only, and only the high priest, can go into that Holy of Holies. The people who experience this initiation process go into the Holy of Holies. And then it's described as the bridal chamber for this author. So let's look at how the Holy of Holies and the temple metaphor is used to express this ritual of initiation. Take a look at page 69 of the manuscript. There were three buildings specifically for sacrifice in Jerusalem. The one facing west called the Holy. Another facing south called the Holy of Holy. The third facing east called the Holy of the Holies. The place where only the high priest enters. Baptism is the holy building. Redemption is the holy of holy. The holy of holies is the bridal chamber. Baptism includes the resurrection and the redemption. The redemption takes place in the bridal chamber. 
but the bridal chamber is in that which is superior to blank space, etc., and it goes on about Jerusalem and the Holy of Holies. The final sentence there in the paragraph says this, Because of this, the temple's veil was rent from top to bottom, for it was fitting for some from below to go upward. So it's linking the, first of all, using the analogy of the temple to describe the ritual, and then saying that the ritual is all about those from below going upward. That's what this ritual is all about. The ritual of initiation is a process that is actually a ritual enactment of salvation. So there's an intimate link between what we've been talking about so far in the worldview about salvation and Christ's role in it and the actual rituals of the, and practices of this group. Another thing to note here is just how bound up together the different elements in the process are. And it gets rather confusing in a way to figure out how the different components, how the different rituals are related to one another. And it seems that they're all bound up together in one initiation process, perhaps, as opposed to it being that baptism is done and then at a later time you do redemption and at a later time you do the bridal chamber. It seems almost like all of them are bound up together in a process of initiation. Take a look at the phrasing here. It talks about baptism being one of the buildings in the temple, redemption being another one, and bridal chamber being the Holy of Holies. But then it says baptism includes the resurrection and the redemption. So a minute ago it was talking about baptism and redemption as separate, but there it's saying baptism includes the redemption. So it starts to sound like the two are one and the same. It seems overall this is the best way to understand these various things that are referred to in the Gospel of Philip, is that they were steps in a process of initiation. Phanos makes a similar point in his dissertation, Baptism in the Bridal Chamber. Most of my discussion here is informed by Phanos's work. Let's go into uh, the components or stages in the ritual process. There's another passage that uses the temple analogy. Let's just look at it quickly before we get into some of the details of the initiation itself. Uh, on page 84 of the manuscript, the bridal chamber, however, remains hidden. It is the holy in the holy. The veil at first concealed how God controlled the creation. The veil at first concealed how God controlled the creation. But when the veil is rent and the things inside are revealed, so it's a revelation. We know that an author like this thinks of knowledge being revealed by the Savior. But when the veil is rent and the things inside are revealed, this house will be left desolate or rather be destroyed. And the whole inferior Godhead will flee from here, but not into the Holy of Holies, for it will not be able to mix with the unmixed light and the flawless fullness, but will be under the wings of the cross and under its arms. This ark will be their salvation when the flood of water surges over them. All kinds of metaphors and analogies mixing here. If some belong to the order of the priesthood, they will be able to go within the veil with the high priest. So it is using the analogy of the Day of Atonement there. And it's now talking about those who are sons of the perfect man using the analogy of priests who will be able to go with the high priest into the Holy of Holies. For this reason, the veil was not rent at the top only, since it would open only to those above. Nor was it rent at the bottom only, since it would have been revealed only to those below. But it was rent from top to bottom. Those above open to us the things below, in order that we may go into the secret of the truth. This truly is what is held in high regard and what is strong. So the ripping of the veil is an analogy for having the truth revealed to you. 
but at the same time using all kinds of metaphors together. It's not all that clear. Take a look at page 67 in the manuscript, one sentence that lists what is involved, it seems, in the ritual, or at least the components in the ritual. Uh, it's one of the few places where they're listed all together. The Lord did everything in a mystery. They actually call it a mystery. The initiation is a mystery. A baptism and a chrism and a Eucharist and a redemption and a bridal chamber. They have a list of a whole lot of things. Baptism, chrism. Chrism has to do with anointing. Eucharist, Thanksgiving meal uh, that other Christians celebrate, but obviously understood in a particular way here. Redemption and bridal chamber. Now, each time these words come up in different places, it sounds like you're getting a bit of knowledge but then, and start to understand it, but then they'll confuse you a little bit by saying the two things are one and the same. So you're never quite clear on exactly what's going on. But you can, as scholars, reconstruct to some degree what was important in this ritual of initiation. And it seems it was one whole initiation process. What's the clearest and what is talked about most is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the bridal chamber. That seems to be the culmination of a ritual process that was the finalization and reenactment, you could say, of salvation. And that baptism and chrism were part of the stages towards bridal chamber. And this seems to be the way in which they practiced this initiation within the community that used the Gospel of Philip. Let's try and do our best to look at the bridal chamber because it's what we have talked about most and it seems to be the focal point of the initiation. It's the culmination with the baptism and the chrism and the redemption and other elements bound up in the whole process. We'll start to get an idea of what is the bridal chamber for this author. What does that ritual involve and what does it entail? This ritual of initiation is linked up to the worldview we've already explained about the male and female separation. Remember, the condition of humanity is separation of male and female. Not in a literal sense, but that's the metaphor that is used for the condition of humanity. Separation of male and female. And salvation, we've already seen indicated, is the reuniting of male and female, and sexual imagery is used to express it. It's not that they engaged in sex, it's that they use the imagery of that to describe salvation. Always remember, these are metaphors. Take a look at passage on page 65 of the manuscript. The forms of evil spirit include male ones and female ones. The males are they that unite with the souls which inhabit a female form. But the females are they which are mingled with those in a male form, though one who was disobedient. And none shall be able to escape them. And none shall be able to escape them since they detain him if he does not receive a male power or a female power, the bridegroom and the bride. One receives them from the mirrored bridal chamber. When the wanton women see a male sitting alone, they leap down on him and play with him and defile him. So also the lecherous men, when they see a beautiful woman sitting alone, they persuade her and compel her, wishing to defile her. So using the sexual imagery negatively here to talk about the inability to achieve knowledge, the inability to be saved, or at least the status of some humans who are in that state. Using sexual imagery to talk about the status of not being saved. They're going to go on to the bridal chamber ritual being the sexual imagery of salvation and the rejoining and the reuniting of Adam and Eve that we've learned about already.
But if they see the man and his wife sitting beside one another, the female cannot come in to the man, nor can the male come in to the woman. Look at this next phrase here, very important for you. So if the image and the angel are united with one another, neither can any venture to go into the man or the woman. So that whole analogy of evil spirits sexually raping you uh, that has just gone before, and that that's the state of humanity, using that imagery, uh, the metaphor of that, to say we're in a bad state, can be overcome by the image and the angel uniting. The image and the angel. Elsewhere, we're going to see that this is intimately tied in with the bridal chamber ritual. The culmination of initiation in the group that used the Gospel of Philip is the bridal chamber. And the bridal chamber is the place in which the image reunites with the angel. To use other language, to link it up with what you're familiar with elsewhere, where the male reunites with the female, where Adam reunites with Eve. It's only an analogy, a metaphor, the male and female coming together, right? But the analogy of the male and female coming together reunited is the analogy of the spiritual elements reuniting with the Pleroma. But there are hints here and there that that is what is going on here in the way that this is understood. So the bridal chamber is the culmination of an initiation which is the enactment of reuniting with the spiritual realm and sexual imagery of a female uniting with a male of an image reuniting with its angel is the way it's expressed. But let's look at another passage about the bridal chamber that will start to fill it in. We've already got the idea of the image reuniting with the angel and that that takes place at the final stage of that initiation ritual. That there's baptism, that there's anointing, chrism, and that the ritual culminates in the bridal chamber when the image reunites with the angel, where the spiritual element reunites through knowledge with the spiritual realm. But let's go on to another passage now. Look at page 68 of the manuscript, lines 22 and following. By the way, this is a section where it, we've already dealt with this when we were talking about the condition of humanity. Talking about Eve was still in Adam, death did not exist. When she was separated from him, death came into being. If he enters again and attains his former self, death will be no more. The process of entering again and attaining your former self is going to be equivalent of the process of what happens in the bridal chamber. But here we have fragmentary paragraph right after that. And then we have the bridal chamber coming to us uh, when we get into page 69 of the manuscript. Let's look through this and try and unpack it a bit, see what we can get out of it. A bridal chamber is not for the animals, nor is it for the slaves, nor for defiled women. But it is for free men and virgins. There's the other category of humanity there. So the bridal chamber is for free men and virgins. Through the Holy Spirit we are indeed begotten again, but we are begotten through Christ in the two. We are anointed through the Spirit. Remember, chrism involves anointing. When we were begotten, we were united. None can see himself either in water, baptism, or in a mirror without light, chrism. Nor can you see in light without water or mirror. For this reason, it is fitting to baptize in the two, in the light and the water. So they're referring to the two other components in the overall initiation process. Chrism, which is baptism in light, and baptism, which is baptism in water. 
are part of the overall initiation process that culminates in the bridal chamber, which is the final reuniting. And then it goes on in this section to the temple analogy. Let's move on to page 70 of the manuscript that will fill in a little bit more about what this author seems to think about this ritual. Something I've pointed out before, but I wanted to underline it now in connection with how the worldview we've been outlining links up and is intimately tied in with the ritual. In the same way, and any anthropologist will tell you that rituals in general are reenactments of mythology, are intimately tied with mythology, are intimately tied with worldview. The worldview and the ritual interplay with one another. And often rituals are enactments of what you believe. And that's what we're seeing in the case of the Gospel of Philip here. The intimate connection between the worldview and the enactment of that worldview in the process of actual practices in the community life of the Christians who belong to this group. If the woman had not separated from the man, she should not die with the man. His separation became the beginning of death. We read that one earlier. Because of this, Christ came to repair the separation, which was from the beginning, and again unite the two, and to give life to those who died as a result of the separation, and unite them. That uniting is what takes place in the bridal chamber ritual for this particular community. Let's look at page 81 now. They talk about marriage again, the analogy of marriage. No one can know when the husband and the wife have intercourse with one another, except the two of them. Indeed, marriage in the world is a mystery for those who have taken a wife. If there is a hidden quality to the marriage of defilement, that's what they call marriage in the world, marriage of defilement, how much more is the undefiled marriage a true mystery? It's the bridal chamber. The sexual union, metaphorically, of male and female, but truly the union of the image and the angel, of the male and the female, of the spiritual element with the spiritual realm, is what's talked about here, and the sexual imagery is quite strong. It is not fleshly but pure, this true mystery. It belongs not to desire but to the will. It belongs not to the darkness or the night, but to the day and the light. If a marriage is open to the public, it has become prostitution. And the bride plays a harlot not only when she is impregnated by another man, etc. And this has actually led in part to the debates among scholars on whether or not the author of the Gospel of Philip and the people who used it, whether or not they were sexually ascetic or not. There's debate on this. Some have argued that there is a somewhat positive or at least less negative attitude towards actual sexuality in the Gospel of Philip. And Foster talks a bit about that in his article that you read. So some have argued that there may have been a less negative attitude towards actual marriage and actual sexuality in the Gospel of Philip community. Others argue quite the contrary. The degree to which sexuality is spoken positively of is only insofar as it's an analogy for the initiation in the bridal chamber. In other words, sexuality is spoken very positively because it's the analogy for what salvation is. But that's the only degree to which it's thought of positively. So there's that debate among scholars, and it's hard to solve. In other words, whether the concrete practices of these Christians who use this document, was it that they didn't get married and refrained from marriage and didn't have sex, sex within marriage? Or did they have a somewhat more positive view than some other Nag Hammadi authors about it? never a point where you have the misconception, at least I don't, when I'm reading the Gospel of Philip, that they actually had a rite where one of the female members of the group was with a male member of the group and they had sex in this bridal chamber as a symbol of 
there's nothing that points me in that direction. Let's talk about the kiss, though, just before we finish off on a couple things. Let's get back to that controversial kiss between Mary Magdalene and Jesus with which we opened the discussion in the previous episode, that kiss that has been blown into a whole story in the Da Vinci Code. We have within Paul's letters, so in the 50s CE, we know that some Christians, at least that belong to Paul's groups, have the custom of greeting one another with a kiss. The holy kiss, as it's called. So in Romans 16, at the end of his letter to the Christians at Rome, an example of this. Greet everyone with a holy kiss. It seems to have continued to be a custom, and it seems to be a custom among the followers of Jesus who use the Gospel of Philip. But they have a very particular understanding of the significance of it that we get hints of. Once again, we don't have it explained to us, but we have hints of it. They sometimes talk about this kiss as a conception from the grace. The kiss is the means by which you gain conception from grace. So take a look at 59, 1-5 as an example of this. This is one of the very few passages about kisses, beyond the one about Jesus kissing Mary. For it is by a kiss that the perfect conceive and give birth. For this reason, we also kiss one another. So here it actually is saying they actually participate in the holy kiss. And that, that there's a metaphorical meaning for kissing. We receive conception from the grace which is in one another. So there's this idea of the kiss being symbolic of the exchanging of perfect conception to express some sort of salvific activity, some sort of saving activity. And that the kiss among one another somehow rebroadcasts the salvation, the grace. But beyond that, we can't say much about it. Let's finish off with a few words about the relation of this type of Christianity that we see reflected in the Gospel of Philip to some of what we've talked about before. I've already pointed out to you that many scholars suggest a connection with Valentinian, precise type of Gnosticism or type of knowledge-focused philosophical Christianity. There are affinities we've noted throughout the discussion with some of the mythology we're familiar with from the Apocryphon of John and from the Sophia of Jesus Christ, such that the allusions we got here could carefully be filled in and be partially explained with the mythology we're familiar with from the Apocryphon of John and Sophia of Jesus Christ. There's links there, there's affinities, even though we can't assume it's all the same. So we see the ways in which this form of Christianity here links up with some of the other Nag Hammadi documents in a way, and that you can see similarities, but you shouldn't assume it's all the same. This is a group on its own, I would suggest to you, that has its own way of doing things. And this particular ritual and initiation process underlines this uh, characteristic of this community. They have a very specific understanding of how to reenact salvation, how to reenact the reuniting of the spark with the spiritual realm that is common to many other Nagamati documents, but they have a particular understanding of it, a particular way of acting it out within a ritual. And that rarely do we get a glimpse into that in the documents we're looking at. Another thing that comes out in the Gospel of Philip about how this form of Christianity relates to other forms is that the Gospel of Philip consistently refers to other Christians with whom it disagrees. Later on, we're going to get into the church fathers that are all about railing against forms of Christianity they don't like. But even within some of these documents that were discovered in 1945 that we didn't have previously, we have the other side of the debate, so to speak, the other side of the battle reflected. 
where you'll see this is where the Gospel of Philip talks about those in error. Sounds a lot like how Eusebius might talk about who he thinks are heretics. But in this case, it's the Gnostics, the, the author, authors of the Nag Hammadi documents, talking about Christians like those like Irenaeus who are in, in error. It goes both ways. Obscurely, the author refers to what other Christians believe and then says it's an error and then does his fancy acrobatic, metaphorical, and allegorical interpretation of that and then says what he believes. So let's look at a couple of them just to finish off here to place this type of Christianity in relation to some of the other forms of Christianity it's in tension with and that it has debates with and that it disagrees with. At the bottom of page 53, talks about those who are incorrect and those who are correct. Obviously, the ones who are correct are is the author, right? Just like what you're used to with some of the other literature we looked at when one form of Christianity is battling it out with another. Take a look at page 143, towards the bottom. Some said, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. They are in error. They do not know what they are saying. When did a woman ever conceive by a woman? They're playing on the fact that the word for, uh, for spirit is a female word. And then they're going to do their acrobatics of saying what their view is is different than the other Christians. So this illustrates well what you see repeated in these other passages. In, uh, page 55, 56... 65 and 75 of the manuscript. The author referring to other people being in error and referring to the beliefs of some other Christians in the process. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>